Yay, we got a green light. You have to look down there so often this thing will put a red light. The next thing you know, you'll be seen. It may just cut off. So my batteries were getting low. Had to recharge. We got energizers this time, so how about that? They may last a little longer. That's what the commercial says, right? The rabbit keeps hopping, don't it? <laughs> Playing that drum. King Jesus. All right, Martha, I'm ready. All the armies of the world will someday gather And they'll pass before that great reviewing stand And they'll beat their swords and weapons into plowshares Then the Prince of Peace shall give the last command when King Jesus comes to live with us again He will show his righteous love to every man Wars and strife will all be passed There'll be peace on earth at last When King Jesus comes to live with us again Unobscured the sun will drive away the shadows At the dawning of that great eternal day And there'll be no sounds of crying in the ghettos For all grief and pain and death shall pass away well, when King Jesus comes to live with us again He will show his righteous love to every man Wars and strife will all be past There'll be peace on earth at last When King Jesus comes to live with us again when King Jesus comes to live with us again He will show his righteous love to every man Wars and strife will all be past There'll be peace on earth at last When King Jesus comes to live with us again when King Jesus comes to live with us again He will show His righteous love to every man Wars and strife will all be past There'll be peace on earth at last When King Jesus comes to live with us again when King Jesus comes to live with us again. Amen. You don't have to worry about post-it notes. Takes more than that to distract me. Uh, not much more, but more.
<laughs> How many of you remember the Space Shuttle Challenger? Yeah. It was January 28, 1986. Icy cold morning. After several days of delaying the, the flight, they even had to delay it that morning because of ice built up on the launch pad. But finally, uh, a little bit before lunchtime, Seven people boarded the Challenger aircraft ready to go to space. One was a teacher named Krista McAlfee. Estimates are about one in ten Americans watched it live. What happened next? It's forever ingrained in our national memory. 73 seconds into the flight. Catastrophe. Subsequent investigations found the causes of the explosion. There were many different problems, but central to them all was a set of faulty O-rings. Tiny pieces of rubber that were flawed in their design. Those microscopic flaws became a catastrophic failure that ended seven lives and broke the hearts of a nation. See, sometimes it's the small things that can have the biggest impact. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to focus in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We'll be in chapters 12 and 13. Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's a there's one in the pew right in front of you. You're welcome to, to turn with us. Stand with me as we begin reading in... Mark chapter 12, verse 35. This is God's Word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Mark 12, 35 says, And Jesus taught in the temple. As Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Pray with me. Father, I pray 
that we would not be so brazen. That we would not be so bold as to think we have it all together. I pray that we would not let a faulty O-ring, a small thing, a matter that we think is inconsequential, be the thing that separates us from you, be the thing that leads to catastrophe. Father, help us be faithful with little and with much. In Christ's name, amen. There are, in this passage, uh, four different scenes, if you will. And each of the scenes, uh, there, there's a focus on three characters. So this morning, I'd like us to take a look at those characters. First is the son, the son devalued. In verses 35 through 37, we see Jesus challenge some of the thinking of the day. Listen to what he says. And as Jesus taught in the temple, uh, the, the Greek is, is, is a little bit different. It, it's more like an answering as he was teaching in the temple, he was saying, it's, it's this kind of long, lengthy buildup. But he, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? Now, you've got to understand something about sonship. There's really a couple of different ways of thinking about a son. One is that a son is a descendant. So, father, son, grandson, great-grandson, Right? So, so you have in Genesis or, or in, uh, in the Chronicles or you have in various parts of scripture, you have these genealogies where so and so begat so and so who begat so and so on down the line, right? That's one way to think of sonship. When you're the son of a man, you're, you're the, you are the descendant of that person. And in this case, yes, it is absolutely true that the Messiah would be a son of David. Isaiah promised in Isaiah 11 verse 1 that there would be a, a, a sprout shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. He's saying in this, in, in, in coming days, there's going to be this one who is going to come from what looks like a dead stump. The lineage of Jesse. What looks like what has been gone. What would, what appears to have been decimated is going to bring forth new life. And everybody understand, that's the Messiah. That's the promised one that Jesus is calling to. And so Jesus is pointing to this idea of sonship, but there's another way to understand son. Son isn't just the person who you father. Son is the person also who takes your likeness. The person who takes your image, who who represents you, who walks in your footsteps. That's why Paul can say that we are sons of Abraham. We're sons of Abraham because of faith. And so it's in this kind of way. It's the one who comes after that emulates you. It's the one who comes after that walks in your line, that is like you. And so Jesus is challenging a thought of the Messiah. When they are looking for the Messiah, they are looking for a political 
warrior leader. They're looking for someone who will take the reins of the country, who will break off the chains of Roman oppression, and who will make Israel great again. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a political leader. They're looking for someone who will stand strong and lead them valiantly. They're looking for a person like David. They're looking for a son of David. Not just in his lineage, but in his likeness. And Jesus says, that can't be right. And he goes back to Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David is the one writing. And David said, the Lord, Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, my master. Now, who is David talking about? Sons don't rule over fathers. Sons might reign with fathers. You have a period of time where the dad is kind of old. He's king. He's kind of old. He can't quite administer the, the kingdom anymore. Or he's not quite to that point, but he wants to teach his son how to be the king. And so he reigns with his son for a little bit of time. That might happen. But even still, when you come to the son, is the son going to go against the father while the father's still alive? No. Is the son going to take priority over the father? No. My sons have learned <laughs> you don't take authority over the father. The father is the authority. Unfortunately, they're still learning. Uh, I say they have learned. They, they are in process. We're, it's okay. We're getting there. What Jesus is saying here is you're thinking about this Messiah all wrong. It's not that he comes from the lineage of David and therefore he's in the likeness of David. No, no, no. David was in the likeness of the Messiah. When he talks about Christ, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It's the same person. He's talking about the same thing that they're talking about. The difference is, he's saying, you know, when you talk about the Christ, you're talking about him being a follower of David, like, 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 like David is the prototype. No, 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 no. How can that be? David calls him Lord. Now, if he's David's Lord, he's not like David. David's like him. He's saying, you're looking at Messiah all wrong. That may seem like some kind of nuanced debate, some sort of scholarly discussion. It may not seem like it hits home, but I want you to know, but it's, it, it is the O-ring of your theology. If you miss the point of who Jesus is, if you miss who the Messiah really is, it's going to lead to catastrophe. Because if you miss who the Messiah really is, you're going to miss what he's done. You're going to miss the fact that he suffered and bled and died on the cross to save you from your sins. And you're going to miss the fact that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death and hell and all of it so that when you put your trust in him, you're putting your trust in a victorious king, not just some dead guy. I want you to know if you miss who Jesus is, you've missed everything. It's, it's that O-ring that if that O-ring fails, catastrophe strikes. He's not a son of David. He's the son of David. The scribes missed the point and they devalued the son. They thought the Messiah was just another person. Really good person, sent by God, but just another person. They didn't realize that he was the Lord of all time. The very God whom they were claiming to serve 
After we see the son devalued, we see the scribes debased. I know the scribes missed the point because of what they did. Look in verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, Jesus is still teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Do you, do you see their chest poked out, strutting, walking like they own the place? That's, that's what they did. Uh, verse 39, and have the best seats in the synagogues, man. You got prime territory. We don't do this because, because that's just not our tradition. But in some traditions, the important people sit right up here. Now, I'm not talking about choir. What you'd have is these walls, and we have the walls back there somewhere, but you'd have these walls, and then you'd have a couple of chairs on each side, and you'd have the very important people. Maybe it'd be the deacons, the leaders of the church. The pastor would sit there. The elders would sit there. They would take the prominent seats. That's what this is talking about. These are the guys that sit in the prominent seats. These are the guys that everybody looks at. These are the guys that everybody holds in esteem. They have the best seats in the synagogues. They also have the places of honor at feast, right? Because when you're having a party, you want to have good guests. And these guys are prominent. So you invite these kind of guys to your feast, right? Right? Because you want, you want there to be an attraction to come to. We do this today. How many of you have ever gone to a concert of any kind? Okay, how many of you have, at the concert, you went to see somebody, but other people were performing too? Okay, right? Do they put the most important person first? No. Why not? Because nobody cares. The people that come first are the no-names. The people that come first are the ones just starting out. The people that are coming first are the ones that are trying to build a fan base. If you like these guys, maybe you'll like this one too. And so we're going to put them first to try to warm up the crowd, to get a chance for them to get their name out. But the, but the highlighter, the main event is the, the one who performs last, right? Right? Right. You see what I'm saying here? The scribes were that main event. You wanted someone big, so you'd invite a scribe. We, we, we do this somewhat today with our performances and things. We, we give the best spots to the best people. Primetime television. The networks do not put the show that nobody cares about in prime time. They put the ones that they want everybody to see, that they think have the best chance of competing, because that's prime time. Nobody sits their best quarterback in the fourth quarter unless there's a problem. Unless there's a serious problem, you don't sit your best quarterback in the fourth quarter. You play them. When it gets down to the last minutes and you need that best person on the field, you go to them. That's the kind of people the scribes were. They were the kind that had all the honor, all the accolades. And yet, not only that, who devour widows' houses, verse 40, and for a pretense make long prayers. I appreciated that G. Campbell Morgan 
uh, quote. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to, just by show of hands, how many of you honestly think that the longer your prayer is, the more holy it is? Okay, we know it's not, right? But yet we still feel the need to pray long prayers, don't we? None of these things are necessarily bad. It's not necessarily bad to wear long robes. It's not necessarily bad to be dressed up. It's not necessarily bad to, to be greeted when you're out and about. It's not necessarily bad to be the person of honor, the guest of honor at the feast. It's not necessarily bad to sit on the chair on the stage during the church service. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not really all that bad, per se, to pray long. Now, now I might get you in trouble sometimes. Those aren't necessarily bad things. That's what strikes me so much. Why are these things being condemned? He's condemning these things because the reason they do them. They're looking out for themselves. That's why he says, beware. This is the only command in this whole passage we're reading this morning. Beware. Why? Because that's a catastrophe waiting to happen. The reason they're doing all these things is for themselves. They want to be glorified. They want to be honored. In their mind, there's no one better to give the glory and the honor to than themselves. Now, before we get to point finger wagging at them, um, we got a little problem here because we're the same way. How many of you? How many of you would honestly say, "Yeah, that's me." I will. I like to be honored. I like to be greeted and treated with respect. I like to have the position of honor. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you, um, I don't sit on the stage um, during the service because that's a little awkward. But I, I like... I like being the person that gets praised. Don't you? I mean, on some level, don't you? Don't we all? But there's a point where it starts to become about me and it's not about God. There's a point where it starts to become about me and it's no longer about pleasing Him. It's no longer about honoring Him and serving Him. It just becomes about myself and lifting up myself and making myself look good and giving myself notoriety and fame and, and all of this glory. And, and when I start to seek my own self as opposed to seeking him i've missed it see they rejected the messiah who would suffer and die because that messiah calls them to suffer and die that messiah calls them to put themselves on their own cross figuratively speaking to crucify themselves in order to follow him they don't want that kind of Messiah. They want the Messiah that's going to take charge, lead the people in revolution, and, and set up a new kingdom because they want to be buddy-buddy with that guy so they can stay in power and maybe even have more. It's all self-centered. That was their O-ring. They refused to acknowledge who the Messiah really was and the fact that who he is and what he's done ought to make a difference in the way we live. You know what's the bad part? What's really bad about this 
is that they misunderstood the very one that they ought to have known best. You see, the scribes, among other things, were responsible for copying the Scripture. Now, in that day, copying the Scripture is not go to the photocopier, put it down, and hit print. That's not copying the Scripture. In that day, Scripture is copied the old-fashioned way. You grab a pen out of your pocket and you start writing. And you meticulously write letter by letter, line by line, piece by piece. Now, it took on average several months to copy a copy of the Scriptures. One copy. To speed it up, you know what they did? They got in a room together. Someone would call out the words. And a whole bunch of people would write as they were calling it out. That's how they sped it up. You have 15 people in a room copying at the same time. Now, Needless to say, when your professional career is copying scriptures, can you imagine a 30-year career of copying scriptures, about three or four copies every year? You have written the entire Bible a hundred times. Who better than those people would know what the scriptures say? Who better than the very ones who copy it? who painstakingly and meticulously copying it, trying to make sure that they get everything right, trying to make sure that they don't miss a single point, that they don't miss a single line, that they don't miss anything. Because it's all God's Word and it's all very important and we have to do everything we can to preserve the copies of God's Word. Can you imagine? How could these people miss the Messiah? They were people of the book. We as Baptists, we pride ourselves. We call ourselves people of the book. We say we defend the Scriptures. We say that we rightly divide the word of truth. Just this morning, we stood when we read God's Word. Out of reverence. I mean, we are the people of the book. And if we're not careful, we're going to be just like the scribes and we're going to miss the Messiah that the book describes. You see, this book here is not here for us to make our do's and don'ts lists. It's not here for us to validate our own righteousness. It is here to present to us the Jesus Christ who changes everything. And if we present this scripture by lip service and not following it with our lives, we just like the scribes are debased by Christ too. And Christ rightly says, beware of them. Beware. Why? Because they're only interested in themselves. Think back to that January day in 1986, those faulty O-rings. They weren't the only problem. And what may surprise you, if you don't remember this, you may remember this, but lengthy investigations into the event found that they knew about this problem. They knew it. In 1971, there was a report that was written, September of 1971, And it discussed the very scenario that happened to Challenger. It discussed the fact that if the O-rings failed, there was two O-rings. And if one fails, but the other doesn't, the spacecraft won't explode. Okay? it, it, it may, there may be some damage, there may be some problems, but it's not catastrophic. 
It's something that can be addressed. The spaceship will fly safely. It'll get back home and then you can deal with, you can deal with those issues. Right? But here, this report found that if both of them go, there's no hope. There's no hope. And the very scenario that described the failure in that report that was possible was the very thing that happened to Challenger. Repeated concerns and issues were not enough to stop the disaster. And the scribes, just like the engineers, they knew it. They read it over and over and over again. They had plenty of warnings and opportunities. They had plenty of chances to change their views. They had plenty of time to recognize that this Jesus was the Messiah. They had plenty of opportunity and they ignored all the warnings. And we better take note. We better beware not just of those people, but of their mistake. Because we can make the same mistake. We can have church after church after church, service after service after service, sermon after sermon after sermon that talks about who Jesus is and we become numb to the gospel because we refuse to admit it. We refuse to admit that we're the ones with the sin problem and we're the ones that need a Savior. And instead we rely on our own righteousness. We rely on our own goodness. We rely on everything that we can do instead of relying on the only one that can actually help us. There's one condemnation that Jesus gives that's particularly important. He says, beware the scribes because they devour widows' houses. That doesn't seem to fit in with the rest. But almost on cue, right after he's teaching this, he goes and he sits down and he's looking at the offerings. And now in the temple, they had a bunch of different offering boxes. There were a couple right at the gates. There were more inside. And so they're probably, they're probably spaced out a little bit so a bunch of people can give at once because you want to make it as easy as possible to give. Jesus sits down somewhere in this courtyard and he's overlooking all these different things. So there's an offering box over here. There's one over here. There's one over there. He's watching them. And he's watching these rich people come up and give. He says, verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the box. Many rich people gave large sums. That is not a condemnation. That's just a statement of fact. Billionaires come up and they give more money, right? You know, when you have more, you can give more. It's not as hard to, to give a lot when you have a lot, right? But anyway, these people give a lot. And then, and then this poor widow walks up. Verse 42. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. Now, if you were, um, if you were going to estimate a current value on this, minimum wage, a few cents. Someone working a few minutes would have earned this money at minimum wage. This is, this is paltry. This is change. Keep change. This is, this is pennies that are sticky with God knows what on them and that have some lint on them from your pocket. That's, that's what this is. And she puts this in the offering plate. And Jesus calls to the disciples too in verse 43. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. 
Now, how do you figure that, Jesus? He puts in a couple cents. They're putting in a couple grand. How do you figure that? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. We often misinterpret this. We think that Jesus' point is, look at the sacrificial giving. And yes, this is sacrificial giving. But I want to, I want you to know something. It should never have to be this way. There should never have to be a widow putting in her last couple of cents in the offering plate because she's got nothing else to give. There should never have to be a widow who will not be able to buy food because she is giving money when she shouldn't be having to give money. And the problem may have been that the scribes were charlatans. That they were standing up teaching people, you know, God loves someone who gives. And so if you really love God, you're going to give Him lots of money right here into this treasury. If you really love God, if you will just sow a seed of faith into this ministry, God is going to bless you. Luther had the same problem in the Reformation. You see, the Catholic Church was selling these things called indulgences. Indulgences were right to get yourself or somebody else out of purgatory into heaven quicker. You make a sin? No problem, the Pope says. Buy my indulgence and I will forgive your sin and you'll be able to not have to spend any time in purgatory because of it. Now, if you're rich, it doesn't really matter, right? You can buy all the indulgences you need. You're fine. But if you're poor, like most people, this is preying on you. It's the payday lending of Jesus' day. It's the, it's the guy with shiny teeth telling you that if you'll just give, God was going to bless you. It's the, it's the Tetzel. This was one of the predominant men in Luther's area who was selling the indulgences. It's the Tetzel saying, buy these indulgences. Anytime a bell in the coffer rings, another soul from Purgatory Springs. And it's preying on the poor. And I imagine that these scribes were preying on the poor so they could wear their long robes. So they could be greeted and honored so that they could have glory and power. No wonder it says beware. They squander. By the way, that word devour in verse 40, that's squander. They squander everything. There's no care for the widow, no concern for the poor and destitute. God is a God who takes up the case of the widow. And the orphan, not these guys. Christ is not merely recognizing the sacrifice of her gift. He's condemning the scribes who withhold from God what's due to him. They devalue the son and live for themselves. That's why they're debased. There's a third character here. The widow was a character 
But she demonstrates the point. There's a third character that Jesus focuses on in his teaching. And I say character, I really should say character, because it's not actually a person. Stones. The stones demolished. Whenever there's disobedience of God, there will be punishment. For the scribes and Pharisees, for the Sadducees and the religious institution of Jesus' day, the target for that judgment is none other than the temple itself. Look in Mark 13, verses 1 and 2. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. You ever, you ever go somewhere and you're looking around like New York City? If you've ever been to New York City for the first time, your neck starts to hurt because you're just looking up. Right? Montgomery, we don't have buildings that big. <laughs> you know, Prideville certainly doesn't. But you go to New York City and it's, everything is really tall and it's all impressive. I imagine some of the disciples looking around like, look how impressive this is. The temple would stand somewhere around 40, 45 feet high. Even the second temple. Even the temple of Jesus' day. This isn't even Solomon's temple, which was even bigger and better. They're looking around and saying, look how wonderful this is. Look how magnificent these buildings are. And Jesus is like, oh, you like this, huh? Verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. It's all going to be destroyed. You see, whenever you live your life for yourself, when you disregard the commands of God, make your own rules, there's no hope for you. You'll be destroyed. But it's not just you that's going to be destroyed. Other things will too. It wasn't just the people who desecrated the temple that were doomed. It was the temple itself. You see, the whole system had to go. The stones that comprised the place where God was supposed to meet with men would lie in rubble and ash. About 40 years after this, Titus would lead the Roman army to destroy the temple. Demolish the city. And even today, all that's left of the temple is the foundation. It's a grave warning to those of us who would go their own way. God won't have it. He will not. We can pretend that all religions lead to God and everything's going to be okay. You just, as long as you've got good intentions, then, then you're going to make it. You're going to be just fine. But that's not really true. Jesus said exclusively, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, there's no other way to God than through Christ. Period. The scribes devalued him. And we're debased because of it. Do you value him? Do you look at him as just another person? As a prophet? As a good guy? Teacher? Do you see him for who he really is? Have you missed the Christ who bore your sins on the cross and is able to bring you life? 
and the meaning that you've been so desperately looking to other things. All it takes is one faulty O-ring to lead to destruction. Don't miss the little thing that is everything. Trust Christ this morning. Let me pray and we will sing a verse of invitation. Father, it's so difficult for us to admit when we are not the center of, of the universe. It's really hard for us to admit when we've got fault in our basic understanding of the world. It's tough to admit when there's a problem with the O-rings. We want to say other things. We want to say, oh, it'll be fine. That's nothing big. We want to say, well, other things are going to compensate for it. They'll cover. We want to say that, that, that Lord, that, that doesn't really matter. We want to say, Lord, well, you know, I mean, only in the very worst case scenario is that going to be bad. And, and in reality, God, your, your standard is perfection, and we can't meet that. So God, I thank you that you have provided a way for us to know you. A way for us to be reconciled to you. The sin that separates us from you, like that faulty O-ring, dooms us to destruction. And Lord, you have provided a way through Jesus Christ that we can know you. That we can be one with you, intimately knowing you close to You, right with You. God, You have made a way that our sins do not doom us to destruction. But God, Your righteousness wrapped around us destines us for victory over death and for an eternity in Your presence. God, we recognize that it's easy to miss it. Though we hear this word time and time again, though we, though we see it, though we, though we read it, though we come to church, and though, though we're constantly exposed to your goodness, it's easy for us to miss it. It's easy for us to miss the problem, to excuse it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to deal with the faulty O-rings to replace our mistaken idea of who you are and what you've done with the truth. God, I pray that we would worship and seek for and find the Messiah who is and not just the one that we've created. God, I pray that instead of devaluing your Son, pray that we would honor Him and glorify Him and serve Him. Lord, this is Your time. You work in Your hearts as You want to, as You need to, as You see fit. May we obey. In Christ's name, Amen.